So this morning, uh, we are continuing in our series called Jesus People. Uh, I borrowed the name, stole the name, borrowed. It's a gray area. But I took the name from uh, this movement that happened in the 60s and 70s called the Jesus People Movement. Um, there's a, uh, a, a film coming out later this month. I have just been itching to see it because, man, I, I saw the trailer and I'm like, finally, somebody did something really good in Hollywood. Um, but, uh, you know, where it's a movie just kind of documenting some of this radical um, rebirth and regeneration among people who really need needed healing, people who needed their lives mended because of just all the stuff that had been happening in, the, in their lives. Um, and that movement became what's known as Calvary Chapel today. We're not, like, we're not affiliated with that movement, our, our church. However, we can celebrate with our brothers and sisters that God is moving. And we can celebrate that God you know, took whatever movement was happening there and it started kind of a chain reaction around the country to where lots and lots of people, not just in Calvary chapels, but really the church started waking up from the, the place it had been in for so long. And so, um, <clears throat> so this term Jesus people, I just love how simple it is because if you were to describe to a person who are you? What are you? Why do you go to church? Well, we're Jesus people. We love Jesus. We believe in who Jesus said he was, and we believe in what Jesus did for me and for you. <laughs> and we believe that uh, Jesus has good for everyone here in Florence. And so uh, it's also a study on discipleship, uh, specifically from Matthew 8 through 12, um, in the New Testament, and it's taking up certain moments that happened for the disciples and how Jesus interacted with them and trying to figure out what that has to say about this word called discipleship. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of what discipleship means and all of that. We've done that the last couple of weeks. Um, basically, to be a disciple is to be someone who learns from another person, and specifically for Jesus' disciples, they were people who were devoted to learning from Jesus, how to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did, and to ultimately carry on what Jesus was doing uh, beyond his ministry. And so with that, we're going to do a little review. You can go to the next slide. The first week we talked about the cost of following Jesus, how Jesus, you know, following Jesus challenges our comfort and convention in order to embody his way. And what that means is that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's going to ask us to do things that is uncomfortable. We're not necessarily going to like it very much, but yet he still calls us to count that cost anyway. People had come up and had asked him, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus basically gave them this litmus test to say, it's going to be really tough. Are you sure you're going to want to follow me because this is not going to be easy? It's going to be worth it, but not easy. Last week, we talked about the call and how Christ's call communicates compassionate character. What that means is that when Jesus was calling his disciples, he chose them, 
and then he was doing his ministry and everything, he, with everything he did, he, he was telling people something. He communicated something to them, and ultimately that was about the loving character of God to them. And so even in a place where Jesus was, uh, he had called this guy named Matthew, which was a scandalous thing to do but, uh, because he was a tax collector and that was not good. Uh, he was at Matthew's house and he was sharing a meal with lots of other people you wouldn't expect to see. And the Pharisees, who were a lot of religious uptight folk, they were saying, Jesus, what you doing here? What? Why? They, well, they were asking the disciples, and they were saying, why is your rabbi eating with these people? Why is he doing that? Doesn't he know they're sinners? And so Jesus confronts them, and uh, all in order to communicate his love. Now, that all brings us to this week. You can go to the next slide. The title for today's message is Contend. That's going to be a fun word that we're going to be exploring together contend. And the main passage is Matthew 9, not 9 through 13. It's actually 14 through 17. That's a typo. Um, but the big idea that we're going to be looking at um, is going to be that we express heaven when we follow the Holy Spirit's leading. We express heaven when we follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, in order to kind of wrap our minds around contending and heaven and Holy Spirit, all of that, we're going to talk about a few things to kind of set the stage to bring us into the passage. Sound good? You're coming along anyway. Here we go. Uh, Richard, next slide. Okay, so I, I love history. I'm a little fuzzy on some parts of history, but I know kind of the bigger blocks and movements and things. Uh, there was a moment in our nation's history when we weren't yet really a nation. We were still colonies, and um, there was this rising unrest among the people. You know all about it. I'm sure you've learned about it at some point, about the Revolutionary War. Um, in the picture that's um, in the lower uh, left-hand corner, that is an artistic rendering of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, um, where if you were to look it up, because I had to, online, it, you would find that that was the moment ver that you know historians look back and say, well, what, what really was the moment that the Revolutionary War started? It was then. It was that, you know, shortly after that battle, that's what led to us being a country that we are today believe it or not. Now, why that's so important is that George Washington, seen on his valiant steed, I don't know what the steed's name was, but that's okay, um, but that's another artistic rend rendering of the Battle of Princeton. Um, <clears throat> but George Washington, he was the general of the armies, and he commissioned a flag. It's not the one that we see on our stage today, uh, over here on my right, your left, um, it's this one that's up on the screen called An Appeal to Heaven. And that was all from this quote that's also up on the screen by a guy named John Locke, who was a British philosopher at the time, who said, and where the body of people or any single man is deprived of their right or is under the exercise of a power without right, 
and have no appeal on earth, then they have a liberty that is a freedom to appeal to heaven whenever they judge the cause of sufficient moment. And that's from his treatise on civil government. Now, why that's important for you and for me today. So for them, it was because they, they were experiencing very real limitations on their freedom. They felt powerless to be able to, to, to be free and, and all of that. I don't need to give you a history lesson on, on them. Why that applies to us today is that we are a people that through our prayers and our spiritual practices, God has purchased our freedom through Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross so that no matter what you're going through today, no matter what you're facing, you can appeal to heaven. You can go to the king of heaven and say, Lord, I'm going through this. I don't have any help here on earth per se, but like I'm appealing to you. I'm going straight to you because you have the power. You have the ability to help me out, to bring me that, that realization of freedom in my life. Now, that kind of a moment when we are going before the Lord, we might put the label of contend where we are, um, we're fighting for things in the spiritual realm. Now, is that where I'm going next? Yes. Um, because, <laughs> here we go. Uh, these are like the most detailed notes I've had in the last couple of weeks. And so I'm like, okay, this is, we're covering a lot of ground today. So here we go. Um, yeah. So we're, yeah. Yep. You can go to the next slide. Here we go. I apologize. Okay, more on that in a moment. We're getting there. Now, we have talked about how in the Gospel of Matthew, like the major theme is the kingdom of heaven. And the most basic way I know how to explain it, it you're going to get really bored of me saying it, but I think it's just so apt and so good at just clarifying all the crud because I'm an American and that's not how I was raised. And so like with kingdom, it's really hard for us to imagine what a kingdom is other than like in fairy tales and things. So the way I break it down is into two sections. It's that there's the king and then there's a domain and the king is ruler over the domain. And the domain um, is the place where that king's will is perfectly exercised and done. Sound good so far? Cool. Okay, so uh, even in Jesus' <clears throat> example of prayer to his disciples, when they said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so even in that whole contrast of an idea, Earth, at this point in history, when Jesus is speaking, is not a place where God's will is perfectly done. And I would submit to you today that there are still places in our world where God's will is not perfectly done. There are still places here in Florence where God's world is, will is not perfectly done. 
because we are a, a lost and broken and fallen world from what God had created. And so the kingdom of heaven, why that's so important is the next line down, the now and not yet. When Jesus first came on the scene, um, he picked up this message that John the Baptist had been preaching and proclaiming in the wilderness, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, that word near in the original language, it means now, it is here, it's at hand, some of your translations might say. But it basically means it's happening. The kingdom that you've been waiting for, it's here. Why that's significant is that the people of Israel were waiting for God to restore the kingdom so that the promised land would be restored and that their picture of what that was going to be was going to happen. And so when Jesus was proclaiming, that's why people were getting, starting to get excited. But there's also this element now, now that we have some 2,000 years removed from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that it's also not yet. Because, like I said, God's will is not perfectly done here on earth yet. There are pockets of it. There are moments of it. There are expressions of it all around us, which we'll get to in a moment. But so we experience and we celebrate the now, but there's also this element where it's not yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back and truly set all things right. And so kingdom of heaven, now and not yet. Now here's the contend part, is that... Um, Contend, it's a word, I, I had to look up the meaning because I've heard the religious usage of the word so often that I kind of forgot <laughs> what, what it meant. And, uh, you know, the root of it, it, we get words like contentious from it. Nobody wants to be a contentious person, <laughs> unless you do, in which case, well, God bless you. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but so with contend, though, it's this idea of like fighting and warring and we don't always like to talk about fighting and warring because we just want to, you know, the peace-loving Jesus. But there is this element of our faith that includes a fight. It's a spiritual fight that each and every one of us goes through each and every day, whether we're aware of it or not. There is contending that needs to happen. And so what we do as followers of Jesus is we employ the use of different spiritual practices like fasting and prayer to contend for our faith. There is a style of prayer called intercessory prayer where you are kind of, you're appealing to the Lord on behalf of somebody else. You are contending for that person in that way. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But the, you know, that passage from Ephesians chapter 6. And so that kind of sets the stage for today, I think. I think that's all I have. So with that, would you stand with me? And we're going to read from Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. And as a way of honoring God's word, we're going to stand today. We might employ this practice a few more times in the future. Here we go. Um, 
Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch on unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord recorded by the Apostle Matthew. You may have a seat. The first principle of contending and as a disciple, you can go to the next slide, is that Jesus' disciples celebrate what is now and contend for what is not yet. We celebrate what is now and contend for what's not yet. And that's really important because sometimes we can get hung up on the not yet when we forget to actually celebrate what's happening now. So in the case of Jesus and his disciples, this moment happens right during Matthew's dinner. It's like the Pharisees have their conflict with Jesus. Things die down a little bit. They're, you know, they're eating, they're drinking, they're talking, they're doing what they're doing. And then John's disciples, John the Baptist, his disciples come up and say, Jesus, why are you feasting and drinking when, you know, and not fasting? Because John's disciples, they were really committed to fasting, and they had kind of adopted a similar style like the Pharisees had, where they were fasting not just one day a week, not just one time a week, but like multiple times a week. And evidently, scholars point out that this this revelry that Jesus was engaging in must have been during one of those fasts. And so the, the hungry disciples of John are like, Jesus, why are, why are you getting into that loaf of bread there? We, we can't have that loaf of bread, Jesus. <laughs> what you doing? Why aren't you fasting, Jesus? You're supposed to be the Messiah. What's going on? And these guys are really desperate, and I, at least that's how I imagine them. But so... But Jesus' disciples, the ones who were with him, they were celebrating. It was like Jesus uses the image of a wedding. You can go to the next slide. And it's kind of like what I picture of a charcuterie board. I love those things. I never knew they existed before until like five years ago. And now I just love them. They're amazing. And it's just where all the food is there. And it's like all the bounty of everything ever, and you could just eat it, and it's so good. Um, and that's when you think about a wedding, you're, it's celebration. It's something that you're not supposed to be mourning during it. You're not supposed to be hungry during a wedding unless you're the bride and groom. Like, <laughs> but even at that time, I mean, <clears throat> a wedding celebration would last a long time. For, for in, in Jewish 
culture. Like, you'd be there a whole week of just feasting and drinking and, like, just dancing and saying, yay, we're so glad these two are together. Wow, that's amazing. And, and then there's kind of <laughs> the contrast on the other end. I couldn't find, like, any, any kind of picture of just an empty board. <laughs> but, like, when you're fasting, there's nothing there. You're empty. It's like your hands aren't full of brie cheese and, and oranges and, and salami or, or anything like that. You, it's not full of that. It's just like you're empty. And you approach fasting like, oh, this is an empty moment. I wish I was back at that feast we were just having. But here I am. I, I have empty hands. And what I think is so profound about this is Jesus likens being with him like being at a feast. And so for the disciples who were literally there, I'm so jealous because that would have been just amazing to be there, right? Like to actually be in the physical presence of Jesus just at that table, experiencing what he was saying, what he was doing, that'd be amazing. How could anybody like have the, the perspective or, or the, the practice of like, I'm going to be sad about this. I don't know. And so that's kind of what Jesus alludes to, to the disciples of John. Now, for us today, how do we apply this? First uh, is in the, the reality of the church. Uh, the church we're, we're going to talk about a now thing, uh, something that's happening now with the kingdom of God. The church is a, a physical and literal representation of the kingdom of God in the here and now. The aim of this place and this people that we are is to be a representation of the kingdom of God here on earth, kind of like an outpost of the kingdom, if you will. When you walk out these doors, that's the mission field. That's where we go. That's, that's where the devil can still run amok out there. But in this place, this is God's place. This is where hopefully God's will is done. And we're learning uh, none of us are, are perfect, but like we're still learning how to apply that to our lives. And so we, we give each other grace and we show each other that sort of, uh, that, that grace in that way. But that's what the church is supposed to be, is that representation and that, that, that literal physical look of the kingdom especially on the heels of something like we talked about last week where in this room there could be people who are literal enemies and yet Jesus still loves them and Jesus still calls them towards reconciliation and partnership together in the kingdom there are people myself included where and it's not fair because I'm the pastor and so I, I talk to y'all but like I know there are people who disagree with me theologically in this room. And there are people where if we were to get down to it, there would be like, we're diverging the road, pastor. And it's not necessarily like, you know, like 
It's not supposed to be groundbreaking stuff. I'm not talking about the essentials of faith. I'm talking about like the stuff we all get ourselves in a tizzy about. Like, but there, that division can happen, and yet God has called us towards unity in the church. Jesus' prayer to God right, you know, right after the Last Supper was, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. And so, that's one aspect. Also, <clears throat> the not yet portion is those spiritual practices of one of the reasons we fasted and prayed at the beginning of this year is we're contending for this year that this is going to be a special year, hopefully unlike anything we've ever experienced in our lives or even here in Florence. We believe God has something significant he wants to do and so we want to set all things right by starting off right with prayer and fasting by positioning ourselves before the lord saying god what do you want to do we want your presence we want you in this year in this season that's what we want and so we express heaven when we we follow the holy spirit's leading because there is that contrast between celebration and ceasing between feasting and fasting. And the significance of it is we need to be knowing from the Holy Spirit, we need to be tuning into what he might want to say and say, God, mm, what am I supposed to do right now? Am I, is now a feasting time? Is now a fasting time? What am I supposed to do? And then go and do what he said. Okay, you can go to the next slide. The second principle of contending and discipleship that I see is that Jesus' disciples, they submit to the process and contend for completeness. I love that. They submit to the process and contend for completeness. So Jesus, right from, so he, he uses these three different images, wedding, clothing, and wine. This is the clothing part. And he uses this strange illustration where he's describing how matter-of-factly no one sews an unshrunk piece of cloth on a torn garment to try to patch it. Because otherwise, that unshrunk cloth is going to pull the, the old garment away, and it's going to cause an even bigger tear than before. Um, and we don't want that, folks. <laughs> uh, we don't want that in the best of times or the worst of times. And so, um, and so what I see in that illustration is an idea of healing and restoration. You can go to the next slide. Go ahead. And so the, the easiest thing I can think of, because I always get holes in these things, uh, is genes. And so uh, nowadays, you can buy jeans with holes in them, and uh, which, which when I was a kid, I would have just, oh, that would have been so amazing. Um, and, but I was listening to a pastor a couple of years ago, uh, grieving over the fact that his kids wanted to buy broke jeans. Why do you want to buy a pair of jeans that's broken? <laughs> I can break those in for you. And so, um, anyway, uh, but with jeans that are broken, you know, nowadays we just have 
uh, the patch you can get from uh, Amazon or whatever store you go to, and it's already like just pre-done, so you can just slap it on there, maybe even iron it on there, or sew it on there, and it's gonna make the torn part whole again. <laughs> um, but imagine, if you will, if we just had like straight off of the loom or the belt, whatever apparatus that makes denim, um, and we were to take an old pair of jeans and we were to try to patch it with a, a portion from that brand new off the line pair of jeans, if we were to do that, literally it would do what Jesus said happens. Because the next time we wash it, there would be a terror. It's like, oh no, my broke jeans are no longer whole and complete again. Shoot. And so what happens is instead, you would have to submit that piece of clothing to a process, right? You'd have to condition it before you apply it to the old. That's why I have the, the lovely Maytag washing machine up there, because Maytag is awesome um, and owns half the market. And so, um, but here's the point. Those who follow Jesus, they need to be healed and transformed because the world has wreaked havoc on them. Whether uh, they started following Jesus just a few moments ago or they've been walking with him for a long time, there's a lot of not kingdom of God stuff that happens out in the world that affects us. Whether we opt to participate in it or not, we feel the damage of it. And so we need that healing. We need that patching to happen. And we need it to be done in a way that the Holy Spirit would, in His wisdom, would help it stick, to help it actually heal us so it didn't heal wrong <clears throat> or cause more problems. The other thing is that there is a, a broken world who needs mending out there, an old and, and sorry broken world who needs restoration and needs that conditioning from the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of heaven. And so that means we need to submit to that conditioning. We need the Holy Spirit to condition our hearts and our lives to embody and express that healing to the world so that through his healing, we can express heaven and we can give people a taste of the good that God has brought into our lives. Amen? You can go to the next slide. We're going to get on through it. All right, get to that kickoff. Ooh, here we go. Now, the third and final thing I see, this is going to be a big one, so, so hold on tight. Jesus' disciples contend for renewal and the new thing that God is doing. Third illustration Jesus gives is wine and wineskins. And I've wrestled <clears throat> with how to talk about this because often in, in church seminars, I even have a book <laughs> in my office uh, titled, uh, uh, new wine into old wineskins. So what do, we, what do you do with that? And so <clears throat> to 
talk about this, I want to go through a process. So indulge me. You can go to the next slide. Some of us have never drank wine. Uh, some of us uh, uh, are repugnant of wine, and that's okay. There are other people who like wine, and that's okay too. Just throwing that out there, and we can talk later about that. Point is, there is a substance in the world called wine, and this is how it's made. So you get wine from a vineyard, uh, you, grapes in a vineyard, you crush the grapes. This is like the old school style of you stomp the grapes with your bare feet. Eventually, you, make a, 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 you mix all the ingredients together, and you let it sit in these wood barrels. They still do that part today. And, um, and then eventually, to extract the, the wine when it's finished, you put it into these containers. Now, um, most of the time, like today, if we were to go get wine, I'm not going to, but if we were to go get something, we'd go to Safeway, we'd go to Freddy's, we'd go even to Grocery Outlet, you can get a box. Like, you can get wine. Uh, if you just get a bottle of grape juice and you let it sit there past the due date, it will eventually become wine, believe it or not. And so my point in saying all of that is this, that one of the ways that Jesus, in his time, that you would ex extract from the barrel and you would take to wherever you were going was to put it in what's called a wine skin. It was made from literal animal skin, and that leather was conditioned so that you put the new wine in the new wine skin. The fermented substance expands because it produces gases, and so it, you, there's some space with the leather for it to expand. But then, because we're talking Jewish culture here, and wine was something you had with dinner, so wine was something you had at festivals, wine was even something you could give as an offering, and they would pour it out. Like, wine was just something that was a part of their culture. And so, what happens when the wineskin is left empty and dry and doesn't have wine in it, well, it becomes dry and brittle and cracked, and you can't really use it. And that's why Jesus, matter of fact, he's just shooting it to a straight. You don't put new wine in new old wineskins, because if you do, it's going to burst. And then the wine just spills out everywhere, and it's no good to anybody. So as I was preparing for today, <clears throat> this got me thinking. What does the word new mean? Does it literally just mean new? Or does it mean something else? So you can go to the next slide. So in Matthew 9, it uses the word new a lot, as you can see by the highlighted green parts. So neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. They pour new wine into new wineskins. So the word new in the Greek, it's... Uh, neos, uh, which literally means new, but it depends on the application, how you interpret it. So if you're talking about a person and you're calling them new, it means that they're youthful. Don't we all want to be new <laughs> and youthful today? If you're talking about things, it's, it, you, you're talking about it being fresh. So that would be like if I went in got a fresh apple from the grocery store, that's a new apple, but 
it, you know, it's a freshness to it. I don't want the old apple. <laughs> I want a fresh one. But then there's this funny thing where it's, if it's figurative language, it means regenerate, which means renewing something. Now, in the context of what's being talked about, Jesus is using it as an illustration. So it could be figurative language, but he's also, he's speaking practically. So it's also kind of that literal language. And if he's talking about wine, he's talking about a fresh thing, something that was made fresh, that was, that's, we would consider new. But then he's using it figuratively to say, in the same, he doesn't say it exactly this way, but the implication is in the same way you don't put new wine in, in old wineskins. So then what do you do with the wineskins? I had to look this up. It was great. Um, evidently, there is a way of renewing a wineskin. <gasps> Shocker. I know. It's amazing. Now, this part, this is not from Scripture. This is from something I found on Google, um, and this is not verbatim what Jesus said. So just know that I acknowledge that this is how it is, okay? But if you were to renew a wineskin, here's what you do. It's rocket science. It's amazing. You, you submerge it in water, and you leave it there for a while. And then at some point, when it's good and you know, soft and, and pliable and everything, you take it out, dry it off, and then you anoint it or like you rub oil all around so that it is now usable again. That's pretty profound because you can go to the next slide. For us, we belong to a really old church not just the building. Our church body has been around for 123 years and counting. If that were a person, we'd be like, are you okay? <laughs> Can I get you a seat? <laughs> Can I, you know? Um, and, but yet God has kept us going this long. And that's an amazing thing. And even within our movement, as kind of an offshoot of the holiness movement, there, there is renewal happening today that's happening. There are new things that are happening today. And my question for you and for me as I look at our church, are we a crusty old wineskin? Or... Are we being renewed? Because, friends, we are on the edge of something new. And I'm not just, I'm not blowing smoke with that. I really believe it. I really believe God is doing something new in this town, and it's exciting. And I think the question, even for Jesus, and how he was he was stating this to John's disciples is that for, as Jesus was talking, there was something new happening then that had not happened before, that they had been waiting for, that even John's disciples were like, we're waiting for this to happen because John was preaching the kingdom of heaven is near. And so they're asking John, what's, gonna, what's going on? How's this happening? 
And so there was something new happening, but they were hung up on the spiritual practices. They were like, Jesus, why aren't you fasting enough? All you're doing is feasting. All you're doing is celebrating. Why aren't you fasting more? Why aren't you doing this more? Don't you know that we have these sets of rules and things that we have to do to be a good Jew? Jesus, why aren't you doing that? But Jesus was doing this new thing, and a new thing was happening. And there were people who missed it because they were so hung up on all this other stuff that they neglected the fact that, hey, this new thing's happening. Whether you like it or not, there's new wine that needs a place to be stored and to, to be, to be useful. And so Jesus comes to the conclusion that there needs to be new wineskins. Now, by implication of that, you know, that word new, that can mean either a literal brand spanking new wineskin fresh off the assembly line, or it could mean maybe a renewed wineskin, one that's gone through that process of being renewed. And so, friends, God is doing a new thing. Are we ready for it? Are you ready for it? In your life, if you were like, like a mini wineskin within the bigger wineskin, <laughs> if you will, I need to stop saying that term wineskin. I think it's creeping some of you out. <laughs> Just, but anyway, but the point is, is that like if you, if, if, you, if you hold that new thing that God's doing inside of you, what's the condition of your temple, so to speak, or your house, who you are as your being? And I'm not talking just physically because I know that we all have physical ailments and I know that some of us are just literally old. Hate to break it to you, but some of you, that's, that's your state of being. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking spiritually. Are you pliable in that way? I'm not talking about forsaking doctrine. I'm not talking about throwing out the Bible with the baby in the bathwater. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that just frankly that God is doing something new now. Are we ready?